and good evening. You're listening to Ludbridge Local Radio, and this is Late Night Ludbridge. Chilling yarns and thrilling fables, courtesy of the residents of Shropshire's oldest market town. Guiding you through the dark once again, as ever, is your own maestro of the macabre. Yours truly, John Spine. We're still in the tender clutches of the 3rd of January 1989, the time just creeping over now to 11.31pm. And what a special night this is. Tonight marks the first step in a new direction for the show. You may have heard me say before that the scary stories featured here are now courtesy of the residents of Ludbridge, and let me tell you, your ears do not deceive you. The power is now in your hands. Henceforth, I'll be turning to you, my dear listeners, to send in your own tales of the unexplained and unnerving for me to narrate here on air. I would like to extend a warm thank you for the response of this format change. I was quite apprehensive about a shift of this kind, but the sheer volume of letters I've received, even in the space of a day, has been enough to prove that my worries were completely unfounded. I've been hard at work since early this morning, sorting through the various yarns you've all sent through to our P.O. box. There really were quite a lot. Such busy bees, all of you. Perhaps you've taken a leaf out of the book of our very first author this evening. A name who needs no introduction at this point, and yet I am a slave to such platitudes. Um, <clears throat> it is my pleasure to introduce our first originally written tale this evening, penned by none other than the individual responsible for giving me the idea for this new iteration of the show in the first place. Long-time fan and local umbrella enthusiast, Elena Hoggett. And Lester, too. Can't forget him. Um, Elena's attached a uh, brief preamble to her tale this evening, just for a bit of added context. Uh, it seems there may be a grain of truth to this particular story. I shall be sleeping with one eye open tonight, I'm sure. <laughs> now, let's see here. Dear John, whilst I was deeply saddened by last night's news regarding the show, and just as saddened today by the result of a certain town hall meeting, shan't get political, I'm deeply honoured to have inspired what I hope will be a bright new future for late night Ludbridge. First of all, Lester, that's my cat, would like to extend his praises for your rendition of his letter last night, which I agree was delivered with aplomb. I look forward to seeing, or rather hearing, how you approach my story tonight. I'm so thrilled to be sharing this particular tale. It's rather personal to me. I should mention, however, that the story is not exactly mine, but my mother's. I do hope you can forgive this naughtiness. I promise I have many more stories to share in future that are entirely my own. I merely wanted my first to be of a certain significance for me. This is a story my mother, Catherine, whom you might remember taught at Clan Hill for a while, told me shortly before she passed away. I think about it often, one of the many ways of remembering, I suppose. Lester, to reiterate, my cat, has heard it many a time. All of the details in what follows are exactly, or thereabouts, what my mother told me. I cannot be sure that any of it is entirely true, her mind certainly wasn't all there near the end, but there was something about the way she told it, the way she would look into the distance, through me, past me, past the room we were in, like she could see it all happening. But who knows, eh? I must apologise for my shoddy handwriting. I was forced to write this all down with a degree of hastiness I'm not particularly used to, thanks to the duration of that miserable meeting earlier. I was sad not to see you there, though I'm sure you were hard at work preparing tonight's show or some other such spooky delight. Thank you for all that you do for your listeners, John. You're a beacon of ghostly light in these bleak times. 
Without further ado, I name this story The Faraway Man. The year was 1939, and my mother, Catherine Hoggett, Kathy to those close to her, and not many were, was walking alone through the woods. You'll remember back then that the Forestry Commission had only just gotten round to starting the restoration project of the place, and so much of it was still wild and untamed. Ludbridge Forest was one huge, dark thicket on a hill, a crouching beast of a thing. Children would apparently be told in school not to go near the place while it was in that state, and quite right, too. The place didn't just look intimidating. It could be deeply treacherous in places, with many uneven paths and sheer hidden drops into the undergrowth, to say nothing of the noises said to come from there at night. An odd place to be for a lone woman on a Sunday afternoon. I can't have been much older than ten at the time. Some of you may be wondering now why I wasn't with her. Those of you that know me know as well that I've always been fond of a ramble, and that I would have been all too happy to join my mother up there between those shaded bows, no matter how unsafe it might have been. I should like to say that it was my mother being protective of me, forbidding me from accompanying her to that gnarled tangle for my own safety. But that isn't exactly the case. Before I go much further, I ought to clarify that for a good number of years during childhood, I was estranged from my mother. Just after I was born, my father left us. I was never told why. She adored him, so it was said. The pain of losing him destroyed her, racked her mind with a terrible despair. She could barely look after herself, let alone an infant daughter. And so it was that I was sent to live with my grandparents in Herefordshire. I was lonely there, but that's another story. It wasn't until my teenage years that my mother felt well enough to take responsibility for me again. It was difficult, meeting her once again after all those years had passed. After it had felt like so much of my life had already happened. It was like meeting a ghost. Nevertheless, we acclimatized to each other quickly, much to both of our surprise, I think. Almost as if those lonely springtime years never happened. Almost. Perhaps we recognized something in each other. Beyond the obvious, I mean, deeper than blood. A shared remoteness woven into our very essence. She would always tell me stories, trying to catch me up on her life, her way of breaking the ice, I suppose, diffusing those missing years by drawing me in with various escapades, some banal, some fantastical. She likely made most of them up. She told so many, but I didn't care. My mother hardly ever spoke to anyone else properly like that but me. Even when she was teaching, she would only ever say what she needed to say. Her words were so precious to her. So when she told me those stories, they would feel like gifts. I suppose, in a way, every moment with my mother was like a Christmas morning. Our home was alive with stories until the day she died. I look back now and occasionally lament that we could not have had at least one comfortable silence with each other, as loved ones often do. Perhaps it was the guilt of years beneath it all. She never stopped trying to break that ice. But I'm losing my place. Uh, to the matter at hand. 1939. My mother was rather familiar with those woods by this point. She had started visiting them by herself as the worst of her anguish had begun to diminish. She had told me it was her way of building her courage back. She would brave the forest every Sunday, going a little further each time. 
She'd been very careful to begin with, of course, sticking to what little paths there were, more just dirt tracks etched into the ground by various other intrepid hikers, rather than the more curated affair we have now. In time, the woods began to reveal themselves more to her, and my mother began to feel oddly comfortable up there. She would tell me of all the beautiful things she experienced among the branches and the roots. Squirrels darting from tree to tree, the crunch of the leaves beneath her feet in the autumn months. The leaves up there were made for it, she'd say. The very trunks of the trees themselves, towering high into the sky, intimidating no longer but standing gnarled and wise, the way a grandparent ought to be, blessed with sunset knowledge of the way things used to be. God's miracle, she called it, untouched by man's imperfect hand. She was making her way upwards that Sunday afternoon, towards where the fire hut now stands. Such a lovely view up there. She had been lost in her ascending meander when, out of the corner of her eye, she spotted something. It was a path, faint, barely trodden down, but still unmistakably there, a phantom footway. This was somewhat confusing for my mother, as she had walked this way through the woods several times by now, and had never once noticed this offshoot. Her curiosity piqued, she pivoted from her ascent, and set down the path to parts unknown. After all, there were still plenty of hours left in the day before dark. My mother couldn't tell me much about what she saw on this new path. When I asked her, her brow furrowed, searching for something. She could only tell me that it was very dark. The canopy grew thick quickly, blocking out the cool glow of the winter sun. That, and the peculiar feeling, almost a need to go forward, like whatever was at the end of this path was calling to her. It very well might have been. When she reached the end, emerging out of the shade, there was something off. She saw that the sky had gotten darker, greyer too. She looked down at her watch, only to find that it had broken, the second hand seemingly stuck in place. She can't have been walking more than forty minutes, or so she said. And yet, everything around her suggested hours had passed. She had appeared at the edge of the tree line, a small fence separating her from an open field. No doubt the first meagre attempts of the Forestry Commission to try and bring the woods to heel. Standing alone there, in the middle of the field, was that old oak, an icon of the Shropshire landscape. Though not for much longer, it seems, now Mr. Bennett and the council have had their way. But I digress. It was just as majestic then as it is now, standing alone in that field. It was the middle of winter, yet those leaves still radiated a deep, velvety green, even in that strange, dim greyness permeating the sky above. Come rain or shine, the oak would always be there, as proud as ever, not a leaf out of place. There was almost something divine about it, my mother had said, or nearing the divine, like the Lord had taken a seed from Eden and placed it there, his blessing on our slice of the world. She gazed at the oak in the distance, her apprehension brought on by the strange path and the darkening sky, now giving way to a sense of peace, a galvanizing stillness, for but a moment. Then the wind blew, strong, harsh fingers of cold pinpricking my mother's face. She turned to go, which is exactly when she saw him. There, in the distance, under the branches of the old Ludbridge oak, 
was the unmistakable silhouette of a man. She stopped turning, moving closer to the fence, squinting to see whether her eyes were playing tricks on her. As if mirroring her, the figure stepped closer as well, out from under the branches and into the cold air proper. The figure was tall, skinny and dressed shabbily with what looked to be a dirty white shirt and faded brown blazer and trousers. A tramp, my mother thought. And yet, there was something else. The figure moved again and kept going. It swayed slightly as it did so. Towards her. Why she didn't run then, she wasn't entirely sure. The thought had crossed her mind, but was swallowed by another. There was something about this man. Something she had to be sure of. Closer now. She could see him smiling at her. A lopsided grin. Silly. Her lips twitched. Just for a second. She moved closer, pushing herself against the fence. She needed a closer look. It was important that she saw this man properly. The most important thing in the world. She blinked. In that split second of darkness there lay an overwhelming terror. For a moment my mother could feel her entire body, rigid, all of the want of fleeing but none of the capability. An internal scream of muscle and sinew. She felt how tightly her hands were gripping the fence, splinters pushing into her fingertips, blood oozing. And then she opened her eyes. And there he was, with his smile. His lopsided smile. Right in front of her. And it was fine. No nightmare. No scream. No splintered fingers. Just him. Hello, he said. So banal. My mother snorted. He was absurd. Utterly absurd standing there greeting her like a neighbour. It was endearing. Familiar, almost. He stretched out a hand over the threshold of the fence. My mother's body moved, shoulder joints shifting into place, outstretching her arm, her own palm, and taking his. His skin was slightly coarse, hands that had seen a degree of work in their time. But there was a delicateness to them as well, my mother told me, as if he were made of some paper. Her hand fit perfectly in his, like a glove, like it always had. My mother's lips moved next, suddenly, clumsily. Kathy, my name's Kathy. What's yours? He told her he had no idea, quite nonchalantly. This made my mother laugh, and his smile widened. He was in on the absurdity of it all. Looking at his eyes, however, my mother could see that though he found the idea humorous, he was indeed telling the truth. Thinking about it, she found it fascinating that she could read him so easily. The notes of him were somehow resonating in her somewhere. An old song. One of the oldest, perhaps. Bill. Your name's Bill, she said. He was on her side of the fence now, but for the life of her she couldn't remember him climbing it. He embraced her, deeply, like his life depended on it. And his smell, oh, the way he smelled. She breathed him in and found herself slipping back somewhere, somewhere golden, warm, tussled and brown. And then he pulled away and she was back, 
staring into his kind eyes. He said that it was getting late. It had indeed gotten much darker whilst the two of them had been standing there, grey clouds now turning ever blacker and threatening rain, the sun now well and truly on its way out of the day. He offered to walk her out of the woods. She smiled, jokingly asking if he didn't have somewhere else to be. He said no, rather bluntly, and my mother laughed again. The pair of them set off back the way she had come earlier that day. Words poured out of my mother every step of the way. It was like she couldn't stop. She told Bill everything about her, about me, about my father and all that had happened since. She felt like she could. He was safe. Felt safe. He just let her speak, listening intently and patiently. It was like I was the only thing in the world that mattered, she said to me. As they were reaching the end of the strange phantom path, time once again seeming to have slipped through my mother's fingers in her desire to gift Bill her history. My mother sheepishly asked him what his story was. She was somewhat embarrassed, not quite realising how long she had been speaking. She asked him who he was, where he came from. He answered nonchalantly again. He had no idea. He smiled. So matter of fact. But sad, too. So sad. Yes, my mother could see it now. There was pain in his eyes, despite his attempts to play off his situation. Bill was a stranger to himself, not just to her. Lord knows how long he had been living up there by the oak, alone. How much longer could he keep on living like this? Was he eating properly? What if he got ill? Who would help? Something rose in her. She was responsible responsible in a way she never thought she'd be able to be again. He needed her help. He couldn't just keep on living in the woods like a hermit. He was far too skinny, with his shabby clothes and paper skin. He would die up there if she left him. She knew deep in her soul. She offered to bring him to her house. Bill just smiled silently. She walked a few paces down the slope away from the path. And he followed. That was good enough for her. When they reached the house, it was well past dusk. Rain began to fall as soon as my mother put the key in the lock. As they got inside, my mother instantly led Bill to the spare room. The room that would, years later, become mine. It was plain, then. A simple small bed, with grey sheets bordered by bland wallpaper. My mother told me that sometimes she would sleep in there as opposed to her own room preferring the spare room's bareness. Sometimes a place can be too lived in, she told me once. She made Bill comfortable and then sat downstairs to brew some tea. She left him sitting on the bed there, smiling up at her with his silly crooked grin. He looked happier already, she thought. She was about halfway downstairs when the bleeding started. At first, a small warm trickle ran across her lips. The trickle became a stream then a torrent, gushing forth from my mother's nostrils. She was always squeamish. I remember one day rushing home after I'd fallen off my bike riding someplace or other, coming through the front doors, holding back tears, and her horrified face. All she did was stand there and scream. She opened her mouth, but her wails were muffled by the surging red. Blood got in her mouth, on her tongue, between her teeth, copper on her taste buds, making her want to retch. 
She hurtled downstairs, through the hall and into the kitchen, a nearby tea towel was the first thing she saw. She buried her face in it and sank down slowly next to the oven. It wasn't stopping. The tea towel was becoming stained crimson. My mother began to cry. Quietly. One only cries loudly when one knows one will be noticed. And my mother had spent so much time alone, seeking solace in silence, that she had given up on that notion long ago. She thought she was going to die down there in her kitchen, alone. Panic-stricken, she thought about how long it would take people to find her. How they would tell me what had happened. How people would likely point the finger at Bill. She couldn't bear that. Letting someone in after so long, after she had spent so many years living in fear and hatred of herself and the world, only to have them become a victim of her own pathetic circumstance. The tears came harder now falling down her face and mixing with the blood soaking into the now dripping tea towel. Then, a hand on her shoulder, and another on the opposite side. Then, a drawing close. And there was that smell again, leading my mother like string through the labyrinth of her wounded mind. Back to a small shop she couldn't quite place, but knew she needed to go to, to pick some hazy thing up for her own mother. Bill held her there for a long time. When he let go, the bleeding had stopped and my mother was exhausted. He led her to the living room and laid her down on the sofa. He told her, towering above her now gently, to rest and to come find him upstairs when she had recovered. He smiled his trademark lopsided smile. She smiled back before falling into dreamless sleep. She awoke hours later to find that night had fallen and the residual blood that had dried on her face had disappeared. As she rose from the sofa, she became aware of how quiet the house was. There was nary a creak to be heard. Everything felt unnaturally still. The house was by no means new and often groaned at night as it settled or shifted. A house without sound like that. Like a sunny day without birdsong. My mother went to the window, drawn by a brightness that was likewise as strange as the house's uncanny stillness. She looked up. It was the clearest night sky she had ever seen. A deep blue superimposed with flecks of light that glittered and winked like gemstones. All the while, the moon hung low and close in the sky. She told me she could even make out the contours of its great craters with reasonable clarity. It glowed the brightest midnight white, not a single cloud in sight to cover it. Then the house stopped being quiet. A creak, far louder than any my mother had experienced before, shuddered through the house, through its very foundations. Then, faintly but growing louder, what sounded like what my mother could only describe as a kind of slithering. A wetness, dragging itself along, following in the wake of that almighty creek now returning and once again receding, paving the way for the wetness to follow. My mother followed the slithering into the hall. It was louder here. The sound was more encompassing. It was darker, too. No windows to let in the resplendent night sky outside. There was something else now. A muffled thumping coming from upstairs. My mother's thoughts instantly went to Bill. What if he was in danger? Perhaps this new sound was him signalling her for help. 
But what could be so awful about the creaking and slithering that it had robbed him of his ability to call her name? It was around now that my mother noticed her hands trembling, her fear, her old fear, stepping out of the shadows and engulfing her proper, filling her airways and her tear ducts, leaving her muscles spasming and constricted with the effort of trying to cry, trying to scream, trying to do anything at all. The same could have been happening to Bill. The pain of that thought was enough to steady herself for but a moment, but it was all she needed. She gripped the nearby banister and began to ascend upstairs, the steps feeling unfamiliar and spongy beneath her feet. It was like they shifted around her shoes as she placed them down, like the carpet had become some kind of membrane of some foreign creature. This idea of now being in the belly of some gigantic beast only intensified when my mother reached the top of the stairs. The thumping so muffled before now joined the concert of creaking and slithering fully clear, a heartbeat lending a hypnotic rhythm to the coming and going of the other two sounds. A light was coming from the spare room, just a crack, but enough to illuminate a portion of the walls around it. In the half-light, my mother could see the wallpaper bulge and recede with each bout of slithering. It pulsated, like breathing. She felt sick. Bill was in there, with whatever was causing this madness, she was sure of it. Her feet moved, one at a time, legs quivering like autumn leaves, her steps punctuated by that awful heartbeat. She reached the door and as she extended her hand toward the handle, everything ceased. The sounds, the walls, all stopped. My mother stood there, her hand now on the door handle, back in that impossible quiet. Then a voice, Bill's voice, calling her. It's all right, Cathy. Come in. I've missed you so much. Bread. That was what he smelled like. Like the bread in the baker's that she would visit every week to fetch a loaf for her own mother who was ever so coarse and strict. The light was fading that day in winter when she walked in as the sun was casting golden rays on the counter and the bread, and there he was, as he always is, forever standing in this part of the labyrinth with his tussled hair and kind eyes and his perfect crooked smile making her fall quite quickly, scarily quickly, head over heels into the future where eventually he will break her, but for now they are so happy and he lights her life like those rays in the bakery all those years ago, so warm and beautiful, illuminating the hidden parts of her that she was so fearful and ashamed of and lifting them, casting them anew in resplendent gold. She never told me what she saw in the room. She just held my arm. So tight. So tight it hurt. And, and she smiled and said, I love you. And tears rolled down her cheeks. The next morning, Bill was gone. My mother told me this story two weeks before she passed. It has stayed with me clearly ever since. My mother told a lot of stories, and many of them were outlandish and often, I'm sure, untrue. 
but this one was particularly odd. I think perhaps her mind was swimming near the end, grabbing at memories and stitching them together into some tapestry for her to play in. I say this mainly because Bill was my father's name. Perhaps at the end of her life my mother wanted one more happy memory with him, and so her brain did the best it could. The last dream of an adult, lonely woman. Indeed, much of it sounds like a dream, or something that starts like a dream. I don't know. When I was clearing out that old house of hers, after she had passed, I went into the spare room, my room, to move a few of my old bits and bobs. I stumbled across a shoebox that I hadn't seen before. I certainly didn't remember putting it there when I was younger. Inside was a single piece of paper with a drawing on it. It was a picture of an oak. The oak. Under a wide, starry sky. And for the briefest of moments, I could swear I smelt fresh bread. Just for a second. Then my nose started bleeding. Well, 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 there we have it, dear listeners. The very first handwritten tale of this new era for late night Ludbridge. And what a stonker, too. I had no idea you had it in you, Elena. Ooh, what an unnerving story. I dare say I'll be jumping at the sound of every creak in my house for the foreseeable. <laughs> We're going to go to some advertising briefly now. Now, now. Please attend carefully. More information will be dispensed shortly. Do not fear. Can you hear me? Understand. I don't have long. It'll be back soon and... <sighs> Poor Elena. She didn't get it. She couldn't understand what her mother was trying to say. <sighs> I wonder if she understands now. Elena. Are you listening to me? She's still here. We all are. Please, you've got to help. You've got oh, no! But we'll be right back with more thrilling tales of the grim and ghastly very soon. I'm John Spine, and you're listening to Late Night Ludbridge on LLR-FM.